0: We're here in the Accessible World Auditorium. We want to thank all of you who came to the auditorium, and I want to thank the book lady, our dear friend Bonnie Blows, for being on board with our speaker. Um, without further ado, uh, he's a he's a friend of ours. He's a noted talk show host. Uh, he's an encyclopedic gentleman here, and we've had him on before. It's my great privilege at this time to introduce Ira Fistel, who will speak to us on the life and works of mark twain ira you're on well thank you very much bob uh
1: where do i start you know i've been uh, i'll tell you what i'll start i'll start with my own acquaintance with mark twain uh read his uh, stories and some parts of uh, tom sawyer and uh, huckleberry finn when i was a kid i was uh, eight nine ten years old I was, you know, and i didn't read it with you know any adult understanding i was reading it this kid stuff but I was fascinated by the, by the books, and as I got older, um, I appreciated it continually, but I didn't really know that much about Mark Twain until I got to graduate school. I was an um, American history uh, candidate, MA candidate, but I took American literature as my minor field, and in the course of that, I uh, began reading Twain seriously and studying him seriously. And that was uh, 1964 or 65, so that's, what is it, 45 years ago? (laughs) That's right. Unbelievable. Uh, For the last 45 years or so, I've been fascinated by the life and works of this uh, man, who I think is clearly the greatest American author, Um, almost no competition. The only person I can name in the same breath is William Faulkner. Uh, but other than those two, I, I think they're far and away the two greatest American writers. Samuel Clemens was, of course, Mark Twain's real name. He was born in Florida, Missouri uh, in 1835. His father was John Marshall Clemens, who had come from Virginia originally. was trained as an attorney, uh, but didn't have any money, and was moved going out to the frontier, uh, which is what everybody did. You know, if you had no money and you were young, he went west, and he went through to Virginia into Kentucky. And while he was there, he met a young Kentucky girl whose name was Jane Lampton. Now, Jane Lampton was uh, jilted by her former fiancé, and so she decided she'd teach him a lesson, and she married the first man who came along, which happened to be John Marshall Clemens. They moved from Kentucky, where uh, she lived, to Missouri, and that's where they settled, in the town of Florida, Missouri, which is about, oh, 15 or 20 miles inland from the Mississippi River in the central southern part of the state. The reason they were there is because her sister had married a man named John Quarles who lived there, and so they moved in, uh, you know, the same community with uh, her sister, And Mr. Quarles did pretty well. He was a uh, well-to-do farmer, had a a very fine uh, house and estate there. John Marshall Clemens did not have that kind of um, resources, but he put everything he had into buying some land in Florida, and they settled there and uh, began to have children. Their first child was a boy called Orion, O-R-I-O-N. They named him Orion because he was born during July, when the uh, sign Orion was in, you know, overhead. But they didn't pronounce Orion correctly. They called him Orion. <laughs> he was Orion for the rest of his life. They had several other children, <clears throat> a daughter named Pamela, uh, a son named Han- Hannibal, No, Pleasance, Pleasance Hannibal, not named after the town, it had nothing to do with the town, but his name was Pleasance Hannibal. He only lived to be three months old before he died. And, in fact, of the children they had, they lost three in childhood or infancy. Uh, Pleasance Hannibal died at three months. Later they had a son, Ben, who died at the age of ten, and a daughter, Margaret, who died at the age of nine. So that uh, there, at that time they had three children. Sam came along in 1835, on November 30th. But when he was born, they took one look at him and figured he'd never survive. and He'd go the way to Pleasant Hannibal. But somehow he did survive into adulthood, something that his three of his siblings never managed to do. And they had one more child later uh, whose name was Henry Clemens, uh, who was several years younger than, than Sam. Sam was sick all the time as a kid. Uh, and when he wasn't sick, he was playing uh, around in the creek and almost drowned a couple of times. But somehow he managed to survive, and when he was four years old and his uh, sister Margaret died suddenly of a fever, she was there one day and literally gone the next,
0: Uh,
1: they hadn't been that prosperous in Florida, and John Marshall Clemens decided it was time to pull up stakes and start over again, and he sold everything he had in Florida and moved the family to Hannibal, Missouri, which is on the Mississippi River about 15 to 20 miles away. The fact that it was on the river made it, uh, he thought, more of a, uh, a better a better place to start, a better place to try to make a living, because of the river commerce. And he took all the money he had accumulated from Florida, selling all the property, and he bought a half a block of land on the Main Street. Main, it's called Main Street, in Hannibal, and that's where they settled in 1839 when little Sam was just a little bit short of four years old. And that's where he grew up from the time he was four until he was 17. So this was the Clemens family. John Marshall Clemens at first put them up in a hotel called the Virginia Hotel while he built a house. And the house that he built is the house we know today as the Mark Twain Boyhood House. It's on Hill Street, a half a block west of Main Street, um, right above the the, uh, Mississippi River Steamboat Landing in Hannibal. And it it was built by Clemens himself, as I said, in 36 It has been restored because by about 1991, the foundation was unstable and the crowd of tourists coming through it was threatening to destroy the house. So they took it apart board by board, put a new foundation under it, and rebuilt it. And as they rebuilt it, they changed the uh, house from all the changes that have been made in it over the years and tried to restore it to the way they were pretty sure it looked when he built it in 1836. So you may have seen pictures of the house, but it doesn't look quite like all the pictures today because of the reconstruction. Well, that's the house that Sam grew up in from the time he was four until he was 17. His parents were interesting people in that... Um, They were not demonstrative, especially John Marshall Clemens, who, Sam wrote uh, later, he never saw his parents kiss even once in all the years he was growing up. John Marshall Clemens either had no emotions or couldn't express emotions. And, in fact, the only time in his life he is known to have kissed somebody was when he was on his deathbed and he kissed his daughter, Pamela. But there was no show of affection. It was a marriage of respect. It was a marriage of talent. But it was not an uh, overly, what would you say, uh, demonstrative of love. Uh, it's possible that John Marshall Clemens just wasn't capable of feeling that kind of emotion. Jane Lampton Clemens uh, was pregnant a lot. But in between times, she was not educated, but very witty. She was funny. Uh, and it's very easy to see where Mark Twain got his humor from. He got it from his mother. Uh, at one point, as an adult, he was talking, telling her, uh, I guess you were afraid I wouldn't live. And she said, no, I was afraid you would. <laughs> and you can see where he got his, uh, his biting humor. She was also a, an animal lover, loved animals, all kinds of animals. And from her, he inherited... His lifelong affinity for cats. Sam Clemens was one of America's great alurophiles, An allurophile, of course, is a cat lover. And he usually had anywhere between ten and fifteen cats wherever he lived. Uh, just was crazy about them. So she was an animal lover. If she were alive today, she'd be a, well, uh, what would you say, a volunteer for the ASPCA or a shelter, a cat, you know, a shelter worker or something like that. She also was very vivacious. All her life, she loved to dance. When she was in her 80s, she still would go out dancing because she loved dancing. Uh, So this was the woman who was his mother. John Marshall Clemens did go into practice of law and served as a justice of the peace in Hannibal. He did make some money, but uh, he was not a good businessman. And he made the classic mistake of going surety for somebody else's debt and the other guy skipped out, and he lost everything he owned, he had to sell the house, had to move the, pe- the family out of the house for a while before he later got it back. Uh, that's the kind of businessman John Marshall Clemens was, and unfortunately he passed along his talent for bad business to his son Sam, who was also a terrible, terrible businessman. Uh, the great story is that uh, when Clemens was quite successful, as Mark Twain, I was living in Hartford in 1876. A young man comes to the door and says, uh, "Mr. Clemens, I know you're interested in new inventions, and I know you have money to invest. I have this brand new invention that I'm going to show at the Philadelphia uh, Centennial, you know, the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition, and, uh, ex- and it's uh, an invention I call the telephone." And Clemens says, "Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get one for the house here, but..." I don't see any future in this, uh, Mr. Bell, and I'm not going to put any money into it. Mm -hmm. Bell offered him 50% of the patent value for the telephone. you imagine how much money he would have made owning 50% of the telephone? Unbelievable. And he turned it down because he didn't see any use for it. On the other hand, he invested hundreds of thousands of his own and his wife's money into the page automatic typesetting machine, that never had a chance and was outdated by the time it was developed. And he lost every cent in that. Uh, just a terrible businessman. All right. Growing up in Hannibal, uh, it was a, a, a town that was, uh, like Sam himself later, very much a dichotomy. He writes about the, uh, the white town gleaming in the sun. Well, it was that, but it was also muddy and damp, and depressing, and cold, and cruel, and uh, lonesome. Uh, you know, there were two sides to everything, and, and that was true of Mark Twain's character. In fact, of, of him, his very self, uh, he was both Samuel Clemens and Mark Twain, and as I'm going to talk about later, uh, they, they were actually two different people in the same body. Uh, the best way you can put it is that he had a Mark Twain side and a Samuel Clemens side, And they grew increasingly further and further apart over the years until by the time he was an old man, uh, they were almost like, as I say, two personalities of the same body. All right. uh, The big ambition of anybody in Hannibal (coughs) was to be a steamboat man. The town came alive once a day when the steamboat came by. And in Life on the Mississippi, uh, he talks about how the day would brighten when the steamboat came by and all the action would happen and half an hour later the town would be dead again until the next day. He went to a school there, didn't like school very much, which is lucky because when he was 12 years old, his father caught uh, what is described as pleurisy, may have been pneumonia, on a trip to Mississippi to try to uh, get some of the money somebody owed him. And he came back and died in Hannibal, when uh, Sam was 12 years old. And within the next year, he had to quit school because there was no money, and he was apprenticed to a printer whose name was Joseph Ammon, who printed the uh, Hannibal newspaper. And while working for Ammon, he uh, received his board and room and one set of clothes, (laughs) and that was all he got, but he learned to be a printer's devil. The printer's devil was the kid who took the raw type and composed it on a stick into words and of course it was done upside down and backwards so that when it printed it would come out right and he did this for a couple of years and by the time he was 15 he had become a pretty good printer's devil uh, you know, printer's devil was the journeyman not the journeyman printer but the, the training printer the apprentice printer and also while he was doing that occasionally amit would be out of town or leave some space in the paper And uh, young Sam uh, did his first literary efforts by filling in the the gaps in the newspaper once in a while. So he actually did start writing creatively for the first time in Hannibal, but it was on a very, very uh, juvenile level. Well, when he was 17, he decided he'd had enough of being an apprentice, and he had completed the necessary apprenticeship, so he was free to travel. He told his mother that he was going to go to St. Louis to see his sister, Pamela, who had married a man named William Moffat and lived in St. Louis. Well, he went to St. Louis all right, but he didn't stop. Uh, From St. Louis, he went on to Philadelphia and eventually to New York. He wanted to see the big city. And he arrived in New York when he was about 17 years old, got himself a job as a printer with a company called Gray and Green, a, a printing house in New York. He worked days and he studied nights, and he read and read and read and read. Uh, there was a great autodidact in American history, a guy who taught himself everything. It was Mark Twain, uh, still still known entirely as Samuel Clemens. He didn't take the Mark Twain name yet. Uh, he learned, uh, read English literature, read American, uh, read history, read uh, philosophy. Uh, the, must, the, the guy must have spent every living hour, awake, uh, working or studying. And this went on for about, I think, a year and a half or two years. And he worked his way back home by taking a job first in Philadelphia on the way home and then in Cincinnati, and finally earned enough money to get back to uh, Hannibal. He came back to Hannibal about 1854. And at that point, uh, he worked for his brother Orion for a while as a printer in uh, Keokuk, Iowa, but he didn't get along that well with Orion, and he needed, thought he needed some new adventure in his life, and so he decided that he was going to go to the Amazon, uh, you know, just take a ship to the Amazon, and uh, make a fortune in Brazil. Now that's about as all he thought about it, you know, that's just how immature he was, but on the way down to uh, New Orleans on a steamboat, he fell in love with the idea of being a steamboat pilot, and He made a contract with the uh, pilot Horace Bixby for for $500, which he borrowed some of from William Moffat, his brother-in-law, and then uh, promised to pay the rest out of his earnings. He worked as a cub pilot for two years with Horace Bixby, learning to be a Mississippi River pilot. The first tip-off of what kind of a genius Sam Clemens was going to be was his tenure as a pilot on the Mississippi River. To be a pilot from St. Louis to New Orleans was 900 miles. You had to know every inch of the banks on both sides of the river all the way from New Orleans to St. Louis and back again. And you had to know it so well that you could tell where you were in the middle of the night in a intense fog. You had to know every landmark, every tree limb, every house visible from the shore, every dock, every stream that ran into the river, every sandbar, they were always shifting. It was a phenomenal feat of memory. Uh, there were no guides for pilots on the Mississippi. There were no lighthouses. There was no sonar those days, of course. There, no, there was nothing, only the pilot's memory. And you had to be good to be a pilot. You had to be phenomenal. The average life of a Mississippi River steamboat was about four years. Either it hit a uh, shoal and sunk, or it blew up. And piloting was, therefore, a tremendously responsible position. Uh, Sam thought he never learned and never learned to get a license, but he did. He was licensed as a pilot in 1857. And just the, the ability to do that, to become a Mississippi River pilot, required an absolutely phenomenal memory. And that's uh, the first tip-off of of what kind of a uh, brilliant man this was. Well, he worked as a pilot from 1857 until 1861, when the Confederacy seceded from the United States, and the river was blockaded. The Confederates put chains across the river in, in Kentucky. The Union wouldn't let anybody go south or come north of that. And all the commerce on the river shut down, and the end of his occupation suddenly uh, appeared. There were no more Mississippi River steamboats. Well, about that time, he was looking for something else to do. Uh, for a while, he about three weeks, he joined a bunch of his friends in a very irregular group called Mar- Marion Rangers, after Marion County, which was very loosely affiliated with the Confederacy. Uh, well, they, he was not an official Confederate soldier. But he was an irregular. Uh, well, after marching around the country for two or three weeks and not sleeping very much and not eating very well, he decided this was not for him. And he made a conscious decision that he did not want to fight in the Civil War. Now, at that time, 1861, um, young men from both North and South were running to enlist. They wanted to fight. They couldn't wait to fight because they were afraid the war would end before they could get into it. They were afraid it would be all over by Christmas, you know, Wars are often like that. Uh, the, the people who start them never have any idea what's going to happen after they start. And this war, which they thought was going to be over in a matter of weeks, uh, lasted only four, you know, four years or more, and that's all. Well, anyway, uh, he was looking for something to do when he, when he uh, shall we say, he resigned, he says, from the Marion Rangers. Now, of course, that's going AWOL if you're really uh, talking about being a serious soldier. And he was offered the chance to get out of Missouri by his brother Orion. Uh, Orion had come to work for Edward Bates in St. Louis uh, who was an attorney in St. Louis and a power in the Republican Party and when Lincoln was elected in uh, November of 1860, Bates was named Attorney General of the United States in Lincoln's cabinet and as Attorney General he had some patronage to give out. Well, Orion went to him and said, well, what are you going to do for me? I worked for you for this campaign. Bates says, okay, I'll get you a job. And Orion was given the job of secretary to James Nye, who was appointed the new governor of the Nevada Territory. Nevada Territory consisted of one mountain, Mount Davidson, also called Sun Mountain, uh, and one town, Virginia City, and a couple of satellite towns. It was the Comstock Loan, which had been discovered in 1858 and proved to be the biggest bonanza uh, in the history of the United States. It turned out literally hundreds of millions of dollars in gold and silver. Uh, The value of the Comstock was so great that it financed the Union war effort. It was a target for the Confederacy. They wanted the money, too. And so to to keep the Comstock in the Union, Nevada was made a territory, and then uh, a few years later a state. When it only had 3,000 people on one mountainside, that was the whole of Nevada. The rest of it was all sagebrush. And uh, some people say uh, it's still should pretty much all sagebrush, <laughs> except for Las Vegas. Las Vegas is today what the Comstock was in, uh, in the 1860s. Well, anyway, uh, Orion had the appointment as secretary to the new governor, and this is in 1861, but he didn't have any money to get to Nevada. So he goes to Sam and says, Sam, I'll tell you what, if you come with me to Nevada and pay the fare for both of us, uh, I'll go with you and you get away from the war. And that's what he did. He went prospecting in Nevada to see if he could make his fortune there. Now you notice a current here. Mark uh, Sam Clemens was born poor and became poorer when the family lost all their money. And after his father died, he was so poor that they couldn't... You know, his mother couldn't feed him anymore. Uh, He had to be an apprentice. And he hated being poor. And all the rest of his life, he was looking for a way to make big money quick, and preferably without working for it. He did not like heavy work any more than he liked being a soldier. Uh, He was looking for, uh, you know, profits, and he wanted it now, and he wanted a lot. Um... One of the keys to understanding the personality of Samuel Clemens was his determination never to be that poor again. And the great irony of his life was he made millions. He was the best-paid author in America, in the history of America. He went into the publishing business. He made money in that for a while. And yet, ironically, when he was getting close to 60 years old, he went bankrupt, just as his father had done, and repeated his father's fall into uh, poverty. Uh, he got out of it again because he happened to be a great writer and because he happened to meet a man who took over his business interest and took care of it. But uh, he was such a terrible businessman, he just was just like his father. He went bankrupt when he was almost 60 years old. All right, so that's the story of his career up to going to the Comstock Road, where he became a reporter on the territorial enterprise. That happened because he got tired of digging holes in the ground and not finding anything, and meanwhile began writing letters to the Territorial Enterprise, the big newspaper in Virginia City, which happened to be owned and run by one of the fascinating people in American history, Joseph Goodman, the editor of the Territorial Enterprise, and part owner. Goodman came from, oh, I don't know where originally, but showed up in Nevada bought the territorial enterprise when he saw the success that the, the Comstock was and had a terrific, terrific talent for finding writers and hired a terrific staff, great people, uh, some of whose writings are still read today in addition to Clement. He saw these letters from Clemens from this uh, godforsaken town of Esmeralda uh, in which he made fun of people just writing, you know, writing letters for humor. And he realized that Clemens had a gift. He wrote Clemens a letter, and he didn't even know his name. Clemens signed the letters Josh. didn't even put a last name. So he sends a letter back, Dear Josh at Esmeralda, You ever get tired of being a prospector? I have a job for you on the paper. Sight unseen. Show up, and I'll pay you $25 a week. Well, uh, that letter came, I keep calling him Twain. Still, he's just known as Clemens. Uh, he thought about it for a while and decided that prospecting was not for him and he decided to take up the, the job. There was one catch. He didn't have money to get the stagecoach fare to get to Virginia City. He was 125 miles away and it was August. Ever been in the Nevada desert in August? <laughs> he walked 125 miles through the desert in the heat of august to get to virginia city and he arrived more dead than alive and he staggers into the newspaper and says i'm josh i'm here to write for the paper and that was the beginning of his writing career as professional uh, as i said you know he had made his name by writing humor pieces and this is what uh, goodman saw in him goodman had an inspiration He assigned Clemens, who had never been a reporter and no sense of news, knew nothing about government or politics, he assigned him to cover the territorial legislature, which was meeting in Carson City, uh, which is about 15 miles down uh, the foot of the mountain. Uh, Virginia City is up high in the mountain Carson's down in the valley. Well, Carson was the new territorial capital, and Goodman realized that if he assigned Clemens to cover the legislature... Clemens couldn't write about the legislature. He didn't know anything about government. He had no sense of political uh, politics and background. He would have to write about the characters in the legislature. And that's exactly what he did, and it was exactly what Goodman wanted him to do. And he wrote these marvelous pieces about these dolts, the idiots, the crooks that were making up the Nevada legislature. And it went over in Virginia City like a house of fire. In uh, one of his dispatches from Carson City, on February 2nd, 1862, he signed, instead of signing a Josh, or instead of signing a Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass, or a couple of the other crazy names he used, he hit on using the name Mark Twain. Where did it come from? Well, there are more than one story about it, but the very most logical and most uh commonly believed story is that he got it from the the Mississippi River. When you were in a dark night and it was fog on the Mississippi and you couldn't tell how deep the water was, in those days what you did was to take a long piece of rope and tie a knot in it every six feet or so and throw it overboard with a lead weight on it and pull it up and see how deep the water was. If you had two fathoms of water, which was 12 feet, a fathom of six feet. He had two fathoms of water, two knots in the rope. It was called Mark Twain, two meaning twain, you know, or Twain meaning two. Two marks meant six uh, six times two, 12 feet of water, and that was safe water for a Mississippi steamboat. So in the middle of the night, the pilot would be sitting standing up there in the pilot house, and the guy on the deck would be the leadsman would be throwing the lead weight over the board. Over the side and pulling it up, and he'd shout up the pilot house, half twain, It's a quarter twain, full twain, and then he'd get to two fathoms and he'd shout, mark twain. You can imagine how that must have sounded coming through a fog in a dark night on the Mississippi River, and uh, the chant, the chant, mark twain, that was always sung out. The, leads, the leadsman didn't sh- just yell. He sang it. It It's Mark Twain, and it had this tremendous ring. It's it's probably the greatest nickname anybody ever had. Well, anyway, that's the the most likely story. The other story is that when uh, Sam was covering the legislature and uh, hitting the bars in Virginia, he uh, didn't pay cash. He'd uh, put it on credit, you know, and he'd tell the bartender to mark mark up another drink. And he'd mark up a second drink, so he'd mark, mark two of them, and the bartender would mark Twain. You know. But I like the first story much better, and it's probably true. <laughs> anyway, that's how he got the nickname and how he first used it in Virginia City. He had actually used it to write some letters when he was still on the river um, because there had been another steamboat man who died who used the name Mark Twain to write letters to the New Orleans newspapers. And after he died, Clemens picked up the name and used it a couple of times to write letters also. But he never wrote professionally under that name until he got to uh, Virginia City. Well, at the beginning, Mark Twain was just a a pen name. But as he developed his career and uh, became a writer of uh, novels and of uh, travel books, uh, Mark Twain became not only a pen name but eventually a character uh, in his own books. And We'll talk about that in a minute. Well, anyway, uh, he stayed in Virginia City for two and a half or three years and had to leave uh, under, uh, shall we say, extenuating circumstances. The sheriff was after him for a duel that he was supposed to fight, that he actually didn't fight, but uh, the sheriff told him that he'd better get out of town. Dueling was illegal in Nevada Territory. There's a four o'clock stage for San Francisco, and if I was you, I'd be on it. (laughs) Well, Clemens took the hint. And he went to San Francisco. And there he got a job as a reporter on a newspaper called The Morning Call. He was the only reporter on the worst newspaper in San Francisco. He uh, was supposed to cover everything 24 hours a day. And he hated it. And he uh, just uh, didn't like the work, didn't like writing news stories. And particularly, uh, he stepped on people's toes... Uh, made himself unpopular, just as he made himself unpopular in Virginia City, he wrote about how the San Francisco Police Department was harassing Chinese, and the police department didn't like that. And they told him he'd better get out of San Francisco, too. And so he had no place to go. He went up to uh, his friend Steve Gillis's brother's house, Jim Gillis, who had a house in a mining community called Angel's Camp, up in the uh, Sierras. And that's where he went to hide out for a few months until San Francisco cooled off and the police would let him back to come back. And while he was there, he was in the hotel bar one day and he heard the bartender tell a story about the jumping frog contest. The uh, story we know today is the, the remarkable jumping frog of Calaveras County. Well, he didn't, invent the story, but he wrote it down, and later on, he was asked to contribute to a book of humor by Artemis Ward, who he had met when he was in Virginia City. Ward was back in New York, and he wrote to Clemens and asked him to contribute a story. Well, Clemens said, okay, I'll use this, and he took the, uh, the uh, jumping frog story and sent it to Artemis Ward. Well, it didn't get there in time to get into Ward's book, but he liked the story, and he thought it deserved to be printed. And he passed it along to a newspaper called the Saturday Evening Press in New York. And they published it in, I think, '65. And overnight, it was a huge hit with their readers. Uh, And then Bret Hart, who was running a newspaper in California, heard about this story written by somebody from uh, Angel's Camp. And he published it in the Golden Era in, in San Francisco. And literally, overnight... Mark Twain's name was known for humor that was the beginning of his writing career he turned out a lot of other stories and within a year or so wrote his first book which was his collection of his humor stories and by one of those wonderful ironies in history it was published in New York and printed by the firm of Gray and Green where a few years before he had been a printer now he's an author published by the same firm Uh, He's like Benjamin Franklin, in that he went from printer to writer, from artisan to artist. Well, the book made his career. Uh, He started writing for newspapers in California, and he got one of those newspapers to send him to Hawaii uh, to cover the uh, American takeover in Hawaii, which was going on. While he was there, he got another lucky break, a clipper ship. Burned, called the Hornet, I think, and the crew escaped the fire and rowed ashore in an open boat for about seven weeks, and when they got there, uh, he was the only reporter on the scene. He was suffering from boils, but he managed with the help of Anson Burlingame, who was an American uh, minister to China who happened to be passing through, uh, Burlingame got him an uh, interview with the crew, and he stayed up all night and wrote the story and got it off to Sacramento, California. And it was the scoop, the journalistic scoop of the year. Uh, nobody else had the story, and he became famous for his reporting as well as for everything else. He also took advantage of the Hawaii trip when he got back to San Francisco to hire a theater and present a lecture on Hawaii. And he shows up at the theater at 7 o'clock. It's, uh, it's supposed to be at 8 o'clock. He had advertised the thing. And nobody's at the theater at 7 o'clock. And he's quaking in his boots. He figures this is going to be the biggest failure of all time. Nobody's going to come. I hired the theater. I don't have the money to pay for it. This is going to be disaster. An hour later, the place was full. He stuck his head through the curtain, and there was the whole theater was mobbed. He walks out on the podium, starts talking about Hawaii, and by the end of the evening, he had made a lifetime career as a lecturer. And anytime he needed money later in his career, he could always go out on a lecture circuit and make money quick because he could always talk. You know, he was a terrific lecturer, as uh, um, Hal Holbrook and many others have discovered since, uh, doing the same thing he did in 1865. Well, then he got another newspaper to uh, give him a job going on what was the, actually the first great ocean cruise by an American ship. It was called the Quaker City, and uh, General Sherman was supposed to be on it, and Henry Ward Beecher was supposed to be on it, and a lot of other names. Well, they weren't on it all right, but uh, some rich, wealthy people were on it, a lot of them, and it was a cruise to Europe and to what was then called Palestine or the Holy Land. And Twain got the newspaper to pay his fare and to promise to pay him for the letters that he would write back. And with his reputation earned in Hawaii... Uh, the San Francisco Sacramento Union went for the deal, and he got to go on the cruise. Well, the cruise was made up of entirely of people over 60, except for uh, Sam was about 32 or 33, and one young man whose name was Charles uh, Langdon. Charles Langdon was the youngest child of Jervis Langdon, Jr., who was a millionaire coal mine owner and businessman from Elmira, New York, and charles was being sent on his uh, the complete his education by taking this cruise to europe and the holy land before going home and going into the coal business well because clemens was the only guy on the ship who was anywhere near charles's age charles is about 19 or 20 something like that uh, charles hangs out with, with sam the whole trip and one day in the bay of smyrna in turkey charles shows sam a ivory miniature of his sister olivia Clemens said later that he fell in love with the ivory miniature on site. I have my doubts about that. But at any rate, he did come back to the United States with Charles, met Olivia Langdon and her family in New York. They went for their first date on, I think it was the day before New Year's, or two days before New Year's, uh, 1867-68. And they went to hear Charles Dickens give a lecture in New York, and they didn't like him. Uh, later, Clemens got uh, invited up to Elmira by Olivia, got her to invite him, and he stayed up in Elmira for a few days, and I think February or sometime like that, and at the end of the ten days that he was there, he proposed marriage to her. Well, her family was absolutely horrified that they had even knew the man. You know, they, it was a shipboard meeting of him and, his, and uh, Olivia's brother, and then they, uh, Olivia had had this few dates in New York and ten days in Elmira. And then he had no references, no nothing. So uh, they were absolutely horrified. She said no, but they went much further than that. They said, oh, hell no. <laughs> uh, but she did give him an opening to write to her. And that began what Clemens called later the Siege of Elmira. It went on for two years when he pursued her by mail, and occasionally visits, occasionally visits, and finally broke down the resistance, and got her to marry him on Groundhog Day, 1870. He was 35; she was 25. 25 at that time was spinster age for a young woman. She wasn't married by the time she was 25. She had practically no chances of getting married afterwards. Uh, he had to deal with the family's objections, and they didn't know anything about him, and he was this, this wild character from out in uh, California. So he uh, talked to Jervis and her father, and he said, can you get me some references? Sam says, okay, I'll write to everybody I know. <laughs> he got letters back, uh, Jervis Langan got letters back from California. Sam goes to him and says one day, well, did you find my references? What do you think? Langdon looks at him and says, Clements, haven't you got a friend in the world? Every one of your references says you're a drunken bum. (laughs) But I like you, and my daughter likes you. Go ahead and marry her. Well, of course, he wanted her married because she was about to be an old maid. This was the last chance she might ever have to get married. So Langdon took precautions. Uh, he bought for them a wedding present, two wedding presents. One was a house in Buffalo, New York, and the second was a newspaper that he would be part owner of so he'd have a respectable occupation. Jervis Langdon was taking no chances with his precious daughter uh, and this wild man from the West. Well, the catch was that Jervis Langdon contracted summer cancer and died five months later. And When he died, he had a fortune to distribute among his three children. Olivia Clemens received $300,000 in 1870 money, which somebody figured out was the equivalent of about $15 or $20 million in contemporary uh, values. She was a wealthy, wealthy heiress. And all of a sudden, here's Sam Clemens, who five years before had been uh, chased out of San Francisco by the police, and had to hang out in the cabin uh, for the winter. Now, all of a sudden, is married to an heiress with millions of dollars, and owns part of a newspaper and a big house in Buffalo. There was only uh, one catch to that: he hated the newspaper business; he'd had enough of that in San Francisco, and he hated Buffalo. So he sold the house and he sold the, the, the newspaper and moved to Hartford, Connecticut with his wife. And he chose Hartford because his publisher of his first book, um, Innocence Abroad, which was a compilation of the letters from the uh, Quaker City expedition, was in Hartford, and because he'd been there before and he liked the town, and also because Hartford was close to New York and close to Boston. And at that time, 1870, if you were anybody in the intellectual world in in America you hung out in New York or Boston. That was it. Uh, The only other place was Philadelphia. Uh, So he was close to all of them by being there. And that's when he settled in Hartford and began to write another book called The Innocents Abroad, which was his stories about Virginia City and uh, prospecting in California and and, and Nevada and his trip to, uh, to the West. And that wasn't as good a seller as the first one, but it sold well and he was establishing a a real presence as a writer. Meanwhile, Olivia began having babies. Uh, She got pregnant immediately after their marriage, and the first child was a boy named Langdon, after the family name, Langdon Clemens, who never developed properly. Uh, He always had a a ghastly white coloring, never learned to walk or speak, and died at 19 19 months old. Clemens wrote at the time that it was probably the best thing that could have happened, although Olivia was heartbroken. But in the meantime, they had a second child, a daughter named Suzanne uh, Olivia. I'm sorry, Elizabeth Olivia Suzanne Clemens. Olivia was named for her mother and for her aunt Susan, Uh, but she was always called Susie by the family. And she, in contrast to Langdon, was normal from day one and grew up to be the family delight. And she was, of all his children, the most like Sam in her personality and her character. uh, She was extremely precocious, very smart, uh, quite good-looking, and uh, really the prize of the family. There were two more children, also born. Three years after Susie, uh, Olivia gave birth to a daughter, Clara, who turned out to be the only one of the Clemens children who survived into adulthood. And then later, uh, the fourth daughter, six six years later, uh, Jean Clemens, whose real name was Jane Lambton Clemens after her grandmother, but she was always called Jean. She developed epilepsy at the age of 13 and spent several years mostly in institutions and died of an epileptic fit in a bathtub that she drowned on Christmas Eve at 29 years old, uh, some years later. None of his children lived to reach 30. Susie died of spinal meningitis, went insane, and died at 24. And, of course, uh, Clara was the only one who lived. She managed to live to 88. Well, that's the family. And that takes us up to the beginning of his career as a novelist. Uh, He had been, by the time he started writing novels, he had been a printer, uh, a steamboat pilot, a prospector, a newspaper man, a lecturer, he'd done five careers before he started writing, uh, and, and a travel writer, six careers before he started writing novels. His first novel was a cooperative effort with a friend Charles Dudley Warner, uh, but it wasn't really a, a Mark Twain book because it was a, you know, it wasn't all his. It was a shared endeavor. Uh, but about 1874, after Clara was born, and he became a father for the second time, he had turned. 50 years old uh, that year, 1870, 1885, turning 50 years old. Um, and he looked back on his life, look at how successful he was. Well, he was 40, I'm sorry, he was 40, 1875, and uh, how far he had come. And he started reminiscing about his boyhood. He had uh, written some previous stuff about Hannibal. Uh, and he wrote the book that we now know of as The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which is truly one of the great boys adventure books anybody ever wrote except that he didn't write it as a children's book and if you read it carefully you will see that it is very much inappropriate for young people in some places Uh, in the original manuscript he had um, the widow Douglas being raped by Injun Joe Uh, he was told you can't put this in a book that kids are going to see so he changed it from being raped to being threatened with mutilation. <laughs> now, that does not mean that you know that doesn't fit with it being a children's book. And in fact, two weeks before it was published, he was asked, "Was this a book for kids?" He said, "No, this is not a book for kids. This is a book for adults. Only adults will read it. It's not. And no kids will ever read it. It's, don't sell it to them." Well, his wife and his uh, friend William Dean Howells convinced him that it would sell better if he put, proposed it as a children's book. And so that's how it was published, and it's been thought of as a children's book ever since. But if you read it, boy, it's, uh, <laughs> it bothered me when I read it when I was a kid. Uh, really, uh, it's disturbing. You have nightmares. Um, okay, that was his first effort. And immediately after finishing it, uh, he didn't get it published. It, it hung around until 1876 because his publisher had too many other projects, and he missed out on the Christmas season sales, and he was absolutely furious that he didn't get the book published for Christmas 75. And he vowed that he'd go into the publishing business so he could control everything he wrote. Meanwhile, he had begun writing. When he finished Tom Sawyer, he began right on, on writing his next book. And it involves the same two characters that uh, come before Tom Sawyer, Tom and Huckleberry Finn. Well, I, I could go on, you know, for how many more hours? Uh, <laughs> it's well, about quarter to, I think we better take some questions now or we're not going to have time to do anything. So I've got you to the point where he begins his career as a novelist. And we're going to have to do another one of these uh, to talk about the novels later. Hope Meanwhile, uh, if you've got, a, you know, we'll sure. do another one in a month or two and you know, do okay. something else. Okay
0: fine we'll have
1: more time to talk but let's now let's take
0: some questions anybody okay, let's start with uh, Bonnie our book lady for a few questions here. okay
2: okay, okay. Uh, clara as i understand it died in 1962 which is really phenomenal and when you think about his daughter clara and when you think about his life he was born in 1835 he died in 1910 so he saw a lot of really interesting changes he's also the oh. beginner of science fiction and um, one of the things that uh, well, I don't know
1: about that. Where do you where do you get science fiction?
2: Well, I, I read that that he that in that he wrote a short story that was considered the beginning of science fiction by some. Uh, I think
1: Edgar Allan Poe is the, the one who you're thinking of.
2: No, they they gave him credit for uh, beginning for having interest in it. I'm not saying that he actually well, began it, but he was. I I guess I should change what I said. He did. Well, have I, I don't think that you know,
1: whoever said that I don't think really has justification for it because Poe wrote the uh, narrative of A. Gordon Pym oh, about, yeah, about 1842 when Clemens was six or seven years old.
2: I understand that. I'm not saying that
1: he had some okay. interest
2: in science fiction in some of his, in some okay. of his themes. But the, but the question that I wanted to ask was um, he had a younger brother named Henry whom he yes. uh, wanted to get into the steamboat uh, work and he did that. So a theme in his Books. I mean, in his life, seems to have been the subject of loss, because Henry, of course, died in a a steamboat explosion, and he blamed himself for the rest of his life about that. And that really, he said he had a dream about that, and um, a month before, and he was uh, he got interested in parapsychology. Could you talk about that?
1: Well, but we ought to talk about this uh, guilt thing. Uh, I should have mentioned it while I was talking about his growing up. From the time he was a very small child. Clemens had awful guilt uh, guilt complexes from time to time. When he was a little boy, uh, there was a tramp in Hannibal who was in the jail who wanted to smoke and uh, Sam said, "Okay, I'll bring you some matches." And he brought him some matches and the, the tramp smokes. Well, that night the tramp started smoking again, set the uh, he was drunk and he set his mattress on fire and he was killed in the fire. And Sam Went around town for a month, berating himself is because he had been brought the matches and he saw himself as responsible for the death of this tramp. And he had what he called a horrible Puritan the what uh, would not Puritan uh, Presbyterian conscience, and and he was conscience stricken about all kinds of things for his entire life. It went away for a while, but it came back later in life, and he was had terrible guilt feelings. Uh, one of the great motives of his life is, is guilt.
2: The other question that I had is um, he was also involved in several patents, and the irony I think is that even though he was a terrible businessman, he did have some patents, including uh, one I, I read for a history a history trivia game. Do you know anything about that?
1: No. Well, uh, you'll have to say that again because I didn't
0: understand what you said at the end there. Was the patent the history of trivia game? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, he made up a game for his kids when they were uh, eight, nine, something like that, where he uh, used the lawn on the uh, at the uh, farmhouse, Quarry Farm, and used long ropes or strings or whatever to demonstrate timelines on the grass, uh, overlapping history and historical events. Uh, and his kids, he actually did that. But it wasn't practical to, as a commercial venture.
2: And the last thing I'd like to say is that I think he was a wonderful uh, model for all people, especially maybe today, because uh, you brought up the lectures before that he did. And when he declared bankruptcy, he uh, he did a lecture tour to pay back all of his creditors. And there are certainly people who could benefit from doing that today, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it was a round-the-world tour. It was set up by uh, his financial savior, Henry Heddleston Rogers, uh, and he was sent around the world. He lectured in India and South Africa, everywhere, uh, wound up in England, and it was a huge success, and that, plus the book that he wrote about it, Following the Equator,
0: uh, paid off the debt. But I rec- can we say that Samuel uh, Clements was the serious guy then, and Mark Twain was the humorous, the one we all know? no. 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 I think that's which concerned. is which? Tell me. All
1: right. Now Samuel Clemens was the uh, businessman, the unsuccessful businessman, the money okay. grubber, mm-hmm. uh, the person who could not keep friends. He uh. turned on almost everybody he knew during the course of his life. The only two people who were long-term, you know, close to him for a long period of time were the minister, Joseph Twitchell, and his friend, William Dean Howells. But he turned on Bret Hart. He turned on Daniel, uh, what's his name, um, Dad de Quill. Uh, he, he, was, he turned on his, his nephew, uh, Charles Webster, uh, so did badly that Webster uh, died. He was just so heartbroken. Uh, Clemens was a horrible person to know. He was mm-hmm. jealous. Uh, when his daughter Clara was caught in a room full of German soldiers in Europe, he he practically killed her. You know, he, he wanted to he, he wanted to read her out of his life. Uh, she had a new hat. He tore it off her head and tore it up because he thought it was too too provocative. Uh, his children were afraid of him as they grew older. Okay, uh, and Mark Twain then was... The, this, the was Mark, this was Sam Clements. Yeah, I know. But,
0: okay. But Mark
1: Twain's side okay. was the great social critic, the uh, great defender of the downtrodden. Uh, Mark Twain's work, uh, when you read him... Mark Twain is the, the man who created uh, Huckleberry Finn, where Jim, the, uh, the, slave. the uh, runaway slave, and Huckleberry Finn, the outcast boy, are the uh, the great, noble, yes. wonderful characters.
0: Yes, they are. He hated
1: slavery. Uh, he had accepted slavery as a young man because he,
0: he didn't realize there
1: was anything wrong with it. Later in his life, he made all kinds of atonements for, uh, for slavery. His father owned, slave, owned a slave. He made a personal penance by sending a black student through Yale University as his own personal way of paying off the fact that his father owned a slave.
2: He said a very interesting thing about slavery. I, I know that uh, he said something about how, how abolitionists, uh, when we, when we uh, ended slavery, actually... The end of slavery freed not only the black man, but it also freed the white man and I thought that was
1: very well Abraham Lincoln said something the same. You know, Lincoln mm-hmm. said I would not be a master just as I would not be a slave.
0: Mm-hmm. right.
1: And I wanna uh,
0: oh go, ahead. go yeah. ahead. Uh
1: Clemens was Clemens was not a great man. Mark Twain was a well, great author. Well, wow. And I wanna ask you know, as as they got as he got older, the two personalities got more and more apart. And what we do in Northern, when I talk about the novels I'll talk about uh, The Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court, uh, yes. which I think yes. is by far his most under, under, underrated, misunderstood book, probably the most misunderstood great novel in American literature.
0: Well, one more question, of and then we'll turn it to the audience. Um, okay. Susie, uh, you talk about guilt all the time. Was he not in England oh, yeah. when she died? What? Was he not in England when she died? Yes, he was. And, and he uh, felt terribly guilty. That broke his heart, did it not? He never recovered from her death. Okay. More uh, so, She was only right?
1: 24 years old. Wow. Uh, she had been left behind. He offered her a chance to go on the round-the-world trip, and right. she said she didn't want to go. Susie wanted to be an opera singer, and she stayed home to study in America. Um, it's, that's another story. I'll talk about that another time. Okay. But anyway, Clara went instead, and Susie and Olivia, were, her mother, were supposed to come to England with Clara to meet, uh, to meet uh, Twain. I oh, know, sorry, Clara was already there uh, with with her mother. But uh, Susie was supposed to come and meet them. And then they got a t- uh, telegram from America that Susie was hmm. sick, and uh, Clara and uh, Olivia got on a ship to go back to
0: uh, America, but uh, they didn't get there in time. Susie died uh. before they got there. Awesome. Huh. Okay, let's uh, open. Our audience has been very patient. Let's see if we can get a couple questions here, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so, Ron, um, do you see any, well, let's see who has a question. Anybody? <laughs> any kind of questions? Let's yeah. Um,
2: in Yoga, Youth, and Reincarnation, they talk a great deal about uh, Clemens' platonic sweetheart that he talks about in I believe it's The Mysterious Stranger. And how he meets this girl, and they go through a door, uh, and they're in a cabin at one point um, in Missouri, and then the, the dream reoccurs, and this was a dream that reoccurred through his entire life. Um, did you? I mean, do you have any comments about that? Ready? Ready?
1: Can you hear me?
0: Okay, go ahead, Iris. Start over, please. Yeah. There.
1: Okay, Mysterious Stranger is the last book uh, he wrote, but he never finished it during his lifetime. And the b- book that we have, the version we have, was put together by Albert Bigelow Payne after Clemens' death from three or four different manuscripts, pieces of different manuscripts. So it's not really uh, a fair to call it a Mark Twain book, hmm. but it expresses his mental state at the end of his life when he had become uh, convinced that, from guilt, presumably, that life was a dream, that you couldn't distinguish between real life and the dream state. And that was the way he escaped the terrible feeling of guilt that he felt for, for his life. Um, Very good. We'll have to talk about why he felt that awful guilt. But I mentioned that he started feeling it even when he was a kid. And it really became crushing as he became an older man.
2: Some of his oh. books, I understand, he didn't want to have published. That he or he didn't publish them until after his wife's death because she didn't want them
1: published. oh, there was a lot of stuff that was it was that was not published during his lifetime. Uh, he didn't want it published, and Clara didn't want it published. Clara inherited, uh, you know, his manuscripts when he died. And she kept much, much of his work from being published for 20 or 30 years after his death. It wasn't until the 1930s that stuff began to come out. And uh, some of it's still not been published. Some of his letters are... They're, uh, in Berkeley, they're working on the Mark Twain Project, where they have these thousands and thousands of letters. And uh, they've published, I think, three or four volumes of them, and they still got more. Uh, but much of his work, uh, especially stuff like... Uh, uh, his feelings about religion, mm-hmm. uh, he was anything but an Orthodox, uh, Christian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and he was very violently opposed to a lot of, uh, political, political doctrines at the time. Uh, and Clara felt that this would hurt her sales of his books. And she didn't want these kind of things to come out. So, uh, and she, as you said, lived until 1962. So uh, a lot of stuff
0: didn't get published till after this, 1962. And I my friend uh, was telling me that later work has come out on Huckleberry Finn. Are you familiar with that? That they read Well, that? what happened was that they found okay. half
1: of the manuscript that had yeah. been
0: missing. Wow.
1: When Huckleberry Finn was published, uh, the manuscript was in two parts. And one part was in the museum in uh, Buffalo, New York. But the other part had been lost. Well, about, it must have been about seven, eight, maybe ten years ago. Right. The other part turned up in somebody's trunk in an attic in Hollywood. Wow, in Hollywood. Gosh, in Hollywood. <laughs> and I know how it happened. How did it happen? Exactly. We can tell how it happened, because when Clara inherited all those manuscripts, Clara uh, had lived in California, was living in California. However, her husband died uh, which the conductor of the Detroit Symphony died in 1936 of cancer and she remarried and moved to California well her second husband was a gambler and he gambled away all her money and she had to sell some of her Mark Twain manuscript stuff memorabilia in order to uh, have money to live on however she didn't go to some place an auction place like Sotheby's or something she just had a garage sale oh Oh. And she had Mark Twain manuscripts lying on the grass in front of her house oh. in Hollywood. Oh, my God. Somebody oh. picked up half the manuscript to Huckleberry Finn and put it away in a trunk, and it wasn't seen again for another oh, 40 years or so, or more than that, 50 mm. or 60 years.
2: They didn't do business very well, did they?
1: <laughs> well, Clara was not a businessman, no. or a businesswoman <laughs> either. Yeah. Woman either, yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, Clara had one daughter, the only descendant of Mark Twain to reach the next generation, and that was Nina clemens Uh Nina was the classic poor little rich girl. She could never be sure if anybody really loved her for herself or just for her money or her, pers- or her social standing or prestige. And She was all right as long as her mother was alive, but Clara died in 1962, I think, and it was about four or five years later Nina, who was then 55 years old, uh, walked out of her apartment one day, went across the street to a hotel in, in Los Angeles, uh, rented a room, and went up to the room and took a uh, bottle of sleeping pills and swallowed them all and died. I knew you were oh
0: say that. my gosh.
1: She committed suicide, and she had no children or uh, family at all.
0: So there are no direct descendants of Seth Clemens living today. Wow. Okay, let's try one final question, and then I want to have Ivor give his commercial here. I'm not letting him get away with that. Oh, well. That. I want to hear it. Okay, let's see, Ron, if we have one more question from the audience, please. Let's see, are we going to get a question?
2: have a, a question. Go ahead. Um, thanks. I, w- I was wondering if um, uh, you could recommend a, a really good biography of, of Twain that those of us who are fond of him might read, you know, to learn more about him.
1: The Great Biography... Okay, start
0: over. There's no question.
1: There's no question as to what the, the Great Biography is. The, the okay. book that is the absolute essential is Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain by Justin Kaplan. And Justin it's available, Kaplan? Yeah, it's available in all kinds of forms. Uh, for Mr. That. Clemens and Mark Twain. There are a number of new books because, uh, as you probably know, last April 21st, a month ago, was the anniversary of his death, the 100th anniversary of his death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, in, because of that, there are a whole bunch of new books about him that uh, came out. One, uh, one is about his uh, last years with uh, Isabel Lyon, who has been his secretary, whom he fired because Clara thought she was a rival. Oh. <laughs> okay. Clara oh wanted to control everything. Oh and he wrote something, uh, some pretty some scandalous stuff about Isabel Lyon, and gave it to Clara to hold to, to make sure that uh, Clara would
0: be secure from anything Isabel tried to do to sue oh. or anything. My gosh. The pen uh, is Ira, mightier than the sword. I'm sorry, Bonnie, go the ahead. The
2: pen is mightier than the sword. Oh,
0: indeed. <laughs> 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 Ira, um, we, don't want, we don't want you to get away with What is your project that you're
1: working okay, on? Okay, well, now what what I'm in the midst of doing is uh, the culmination of all these years. I've written a, a, a book about you know Clemens and, uh, and Twain, and I take off on Kaplan's theme, that the two were, were so different that they almost two different personalities. But uh, the book was written in three parts. The first part was Clemens' life. The second part is what he wrote, uh, an- analyzing what he wrote, the five great uh, novels and some of the other material. And the third part was trying to get into his mind, what made this strange, com- conflicted man tick. Uh, how did he become you know, two personalities? Well, the book didn't get published. Uh, no. <laughs> publishers kept saying, well, it's not one book, it's three books. And I said, that's the whole point. The whole They're point. all related. <laughs> but they wouldn't publish it. Ah. So what I've done is to record on CD parts of the book. Good. And I have the analysis of Huckleberry Finn, the analysis of Tom Sawyer, Connecticut Yankee, Puddin' Wilson, and uh, some comments on other Twain writing as well uh, and Life on the Mississippi. They're all on CD. Um, I read them from the manuscript and uh, prepared them for uh, for listening on CD. They're not going out yet because we don't have the means to distribute them yet, but we will one of these days fairly soon. Uh, There also is my uh, reading of, of the 18 chapters of Old times of the Mississippi, the heart of life on the Mississippi, discussing his uh, piloting experiences and his growth into a, into an adult, and it culminates with his recount of the death of his brother Henry, for which he also felt guilty, because he had gotten Henry the job on the, on the yeah. ship,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: mm-hmm. then he got into a fight with the pilot, another pilot, and he uh, had to take get off the ship, because the uh, the uh, captain couldn't find another pilot. So the captain gave him passage on another ship until he could uh, come back to the to the Pennsylvania. And uh, on the trip north, the Pennsylvania blew up near Memphis and Henry was. was Henry was uh, burned, but he wasn't killed outright. Uh, he and many other injured were taken to the hospital. And uh, Sam came up the river a few days later on, on the uh, second ship and stayed with Henry in the hospital. Well, Henry was so badly burned that it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to live. But he was in great pain, and the doctors gave him morphine. Uh, Clemens, Sam, said uh, to the doctor, can you give him morphine to, you know, because he's in such pain? Well, the mm-hmm. doctor misjudged the dose and gave him too much, and he died. He would have died anyway, but yeah. Sam felt guilty oh. about that. Another thing that he had is I feel guilty God. about oh. Oh, boy. Uh, also, there's the Clemens autobiography, which, if you're really interested, is not necessarily, uh, you can't believe everything it says. It's not trustworthy, but it has some interesting clues to, to this guilt complex. He takes, uh, he takes guilt in the autobiography, says he was guilty for the death of Langdon at three months. Well, Langdon died of 19 months. I'm sorry, not 19, 19 months. Yes, Langdon exactly. died of diphtheria. He, oh, didn't get, uh, he, didn't. he didn't die of anything that Clemens did. No. Clemens claims no. in the autobiography that I took him out on a cold day and uh, didn't bundle him up, and he died of pneumonia. Well, he didn't. He died of diphtheria.
2: Back then, a father didn't have that much to do with a child.
1: And yeah, he would have he died look anyway. I mean, his, yeah, he this was a baby ahead. that had really no yeah. chance. Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he accepted guilt for things that he clearly wasn't guilty of, as well as for things that he probably wasn't guilty of, or almost certainly wasn't guilty of, Ooh. but he had this terrible guilt complex, and it, uh, it, it he dictated the autobiography in the last five years of his life, and in it he uh, has this fascinating assumption of guilt for something that he knew damn well he wasn't guilty for <laughs> when he wrote about it when Langdon died. My. well, well so I then re- the question becomes, why the awful guilt? Yeah. And that's the question that I tried to get
0: to in you the third part with- of the book.
1: Yeah, that would which be I have not time. put on CD. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I hope you
0: will. I hope you will. Ira, we want to thank you so very much for being here this evening, and you will. We must have you back to talk about the novels. Oh, and I'd love I to. We'll give you a call and set up a, a good time for you. And on behalf of Accessible World and Bonnie and I both want to thank you very much for being thank here this much. evening. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure it's to be wonderful. asked, and it's a pleasure to, to do this. Well, thank you, Ira. and it's Have a wonderful. great rest of the evening. Thank you, you too. Thanks for inviting me. Good night. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Okay, good night. Bye.